Today I'm actually going to be talking about churches. This might not be your typical Thanksgiving sermon, but we've been doing a series lately on Revelation. And so I'm going to be talking about Revelation chapter 2 and 3, and we're going to be talking about seven, the seven churches in these two chapters. Now, if you were watching online right now, I would tell you to just like pause the video and go read those two chapters so you have a good overview, but you can't do that. So you're just going to have to kind of follow along with me. I'm not going to be able to read everything and all of these verses, but hopefully you can um, pick out some things. Some things will jump out to you. Some things will stand out to you, and you'll remember them as you leave today. Um, yeah, so it's not really a typical Thanksgiving message, but there's lots that I think God can speak to us. And again, just lots for us to be thankful for as we talk about these churches. So it's kind of going to be, uh, I guess, in the spirit of Thanksgiving, you could say a seven course meal today. So for those of you who like, you know, three course meals, four course meals, this is going to be a seven course one. So hopefully you can stick with me as we go through here. So we're going to have some visuals on the screen for you. You might want to open up your Bible to Revelation chapter 2 and 3 as well, just so you can kind of follow along with the churches that I'm talking about. These were real church communities at the time um, throughout history, but they're also very prophetic for us today. And so God can still, you know, we read the Bible not because it's a book that was written thousands of years ago and it's not applicable to our lives anymore. We read it because God is still speaking to us and speaking through it to us today. So just to give you a little background about these churches, you can put up the map there. These churches were located in Asia Minor, which present day is Turkey. And it's possible that these seven churches were chosen for God to write these letters to. Uh, because they were all prominent cities. They were Christian communities in really prominent cities, and they were located along a circular trade route. So once these letters, these messages got to one of the church, one of the churches, they would start to spread everywhere else. And so we're going to unpack some of the circumstances and things that were going on in history at the time. I've never thought of myself as a big history buff, but whenever I get studying the Bible, I just start like digging and it's really cool, just all the things that you discover. So we're going to start today with just reading Revelation chapter 1, actually, uh, verses 10 to 11, and it just introduces these seven churches. It says, Suddenly I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast. It said, Write in a book everything you see and send it to the seven churches in the cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Hopefully I said all of those right. I'm just looking at Pastor Bruce because I feel like he should know. Um, so some people think that <laughs> some people think that Revelation is kind of a progressive history of what's happening in the world up to this point. Um, other people believe that this is actually letters and descriptions that are written to Christian communities all throughout the ages. And that's kind of where I'll lean more towards today. And so the last thing I'll say before we jump into the first church is that there is both encouragement and praise in some of these letters, and there's also rebukes and discipline. And there's been times in my life where, you know, I've been called into like maybe not the principal's office, but like the pastor's office or, you know, had to sit down with like a mentor or someone in my life. And 
really just kind of have one of those tough conversations, like have some discipline spoken into my life, uh, maybe, you know, some things corrected. And those conversations aren't always easy. Usually I just like break down crying, as Pastor Bruce knows. But those <laughs> conversations are necessary, um, especially when they're done out of love. You know, if you have a, a parent or a loved one in your life who's had to sit you down and kind of have some of those conversations, like, this is why you have to be grounded. Like, this is why you're in trouble. This is why mommy's upset. You know, it's, it's all, it, or it should be done out of love. And so for some of these churches, that's kind of the conversation that in the letter that they're about to get. So let's just take one more moment to pray that God will speak to us through all this. God, thank you again for today. We just have so much to be thankful for. We thank you, God, for the Bible, that it is alive and it is sharper than a two-edged sword. And I pray, God, that you would speak into every single one of our lives today. You know us. You know what we need to hear. You know if we need some correction. And you know that if we just need some love, if we need to be embraced. And so we just give you permission today, God, to speak to every single one of us in Jesus' name. So the first church that we're going to talk about is um, the church in Ephesus. And this is often known as the loveless church. This church really upheld truth, but they had forsaken love. And so, again, I'll give you some background on each of these churches and the cities that they're a part of. Uh, the city is the capital of Asia Minor. It was very influential and prosperous. The island of Patmos, where John, who's writing, penning all of this down, was actually uh, 50 miles away from Ephesus. So it's possible that this is you know, why he's writing to this church first. Maybe this is where the letters we're going to go to first. This church is praised for their hard work and their perseverance, as many of you here deserve to be praised for. Uh, they refuse to tolerate sin and evil, but they are also rebuked because they had abandoned their love for Christ and for one another. And so verse 4, uh, Revelation chapter 2 says this, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Or the NLT says, you don't love me or each other as you did at first. And when you first fall in love with someone, there is, there's just excitement, there's just like passion, there's sparks flying, you know, you just briefly touch hands and you're just like, oh, like the butterflies and that you just want to be around each other <laughs> like all the time. And I still do with my husband. <laughs> and when you first meet Jesus, at least again, you know, I'm speaking from my own experience, there's that same just like excitement and you're just like bubbling over. I remember being at school and people would just be like, why are you so happy? Like, why are you smiling all the time? Like people just literally thought I looked different and I acted different. I started hanging out with different people and doing different things. And everyone's just like, what is happening with you? And in all my free time, I just, I wanted to read my Bible. Like I wanted to pray. I wanted to just put on worship music, like more than anything else. I just wanted to be with Jesus. And so the question for us to consider when it comes to this church is, do we still feel that way now? Do we still have that just overwhelming zeal and passion for God that we once did? And if not, why not? And how do we get it back? And this church is told to take some actions. They're told to remember, like, remember what God did for you. Remember how far you've fallen. Remember what Jesus has saved you from. 
and repent and return, go back. And sometimes, you know, in marriage, you have to get a babysitter and you have to actually go out on a date night, like go back to what you did at first, you know, when you just had dinner together and just stared into each other's eyes and you didn't have all these other cares or worries and maybe you didn't know all those like, you know, faults about one another. The best thing is, is that Jesus is perfect, right? Like over time we start to realize about our, our partners or our loved ones, like, oh, I thought they were this like perfect human being and their body used to be so chiseled. But, but now it's like, what happened? <laughs> but with Jesus, the awesome thing is that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And sometimes we just need to go back and spend time with him and realize, wow, God, you are still so loving, so amazing. And just have those awe and wonder moments again. You can easily have a married couple who goes through all the motions. They do everything together. They, they uh, go to work together. They provide for the kids together. They pay the bills together. They have meals together. But they actually don't even really want to spend time with each other. You know, once the kids go to bed, it's like they go their separate ways. And so may we never get to that point spiritually when it comes to our relationship with God, that we just go through the motions and go to church and do some good Christian deeds or do a little devotion for the day, but we don't actually have a desire to just spend time with the Lord. So let's just consider these things today. Have we slowly drifted away from our first love? And we're going to deal with this a little bit more in the other churches too. So our second church today is Smyrna. And this can also be called the persecuted church. This city was a seaport city, so it regularly had a lot of travelers coming through and passing through. It was the most beautiful of all the cities, and it was celebrated for its school of science and medicine. And this city also held Olympic athletic games. Many believe that this church represents the state of the church under the persecution of the Roman Empire, which is probably absolutely right, because a lot of people and Christians were treated horribly and persecuted and imprisoned and martyred. Not murdered, but they were martyred, which means that they were killed for their faith. Just to give you a few examples, in AD 107, Ignatius, the bishop of Antioch and a friend of John the Apostle, was thrown to the lions and eaten alive in the amphitheater at Rome. And even more renowned was the bishop in the city named Polycarp, and he was put to death by sword and fire. And these things were not unheard of. Many um, Christians were just accused of crimes and crazy things and were put to death for their faith. Now, there's no doubt that people still all around the world undergo persecution like this for their faith. And people are imprisoned and uh, persecuted for just what they believe. Thankfully, we don't experience that a whole lot here, but we definitely still endure pain and suffering. We just had a, a funeral here yesterday, and, you know, it was a, a deep loss for many people. Uh, Doris Aikens, a pillar of the faith, and so there was pain and, and there's suffering to, for somebody to leave this earth. And ultimately, Jesus is our example of somebody who not only was persecuted for his faith, but endured pain and suffering. And so we have to look to him during these times. And so we might not be persecuted 
for our faith, but there's definitely in every church and in this church, in each one of our lives, there's still times and seasons of pain and sorrow. This church is praised for remaining faithful despite their persecution and despite their imprisonment. Materially, they were impoverished, but spiritually, they were wealthy. And the name Smyrna comes from the word myrrh, and myrrh is something that is bitter to taste. And so this could be speaking to the fact that they endured a lot of bitter treatment, many people in this city, in this church. But myrrh also has a sweet smell to it, and this could be expressive of the saints faithfully giving up their lives and being faithful and obedient to God no matter what the cost. Uh, some other interesting things just about myrrh, where this word Smyrna um, might come from, or might, God might be um, relating some things here. Myrrh is produced by crushing a fragrant plant, and the church at Smyrna had definitely been crushed by persecution. Myrrh was also used in the embalming of dead bodies to preserve them. That's not something we like to talk about or think about too much, but whenever we lose a loved one, like I mentioned yesterday, we want to do everything that we can to preserve this person's memory, especially if they were someone like Doris who just left a huge legacy. And I, I loved, I never knew her personally, but I loved just hearing the stories about her and the different things that people had to say. And so when we lose someone that we love, a pillar of the faith, we want to preserve their memories. We want them to live on in many ways. And so this could also speak to the fact that even though these people, many of them, their lives were cut short, and they were killed for their faith, their legacy and their faith and their memories would live on. This church actually has no rebuke against it. They are encouraged to stand strong, and they will receive the victor's crown. And this was language that these people would understand because they had held the Olympic Games there. And so they understood that when an athlete won, they would get a crown, a victory. They would get a victory wreath or a trophy prize. And God is using the same language to communicate with them. The last verse um, with this church says, Revelation 2.11, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, they will not be hurt at all by the second death. And so again, God is using language. He's talking, these people were very familiar with death. And he's referring to eternity when the Lord comes back in this present world that we now know ends. There will be no more pain, no more suffering. And they will walk in into eternal life and into victory. All right, move on to the third church, which is Pergamum. This church can also be called the compromising church. Pergamum was a sophisticated city built on a hill. It was a center of Greek culture and education. It was known for having a huge library. It was also the center of four major cults. So there was lots of idolatry. Um, there was even a temple built to worship Caesar, one of the uh, main gods was uh, considered to be a god of healing, and so people came from all over to seek healing from this false god. And there are strong words used against this church. Jesus says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, in Revelation 2.13. 
And so this is probably speaking to the idolatry um, and all of the false worship that was going on there. There was great pressure in this church to compromise, to mix with all of these other ideas and religions. You know, a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of everything else, too. And there's no doubt that we are often tempted to compromise in similar ways still today. We don't have big golden statues and somebody telling us to bow down and worship them, but we are definitely pushed to worship things other than Jesus, whether that be materialism or this ideal picture of you know, how your body should look or what your family should look like or this perfect little house that you should live in. We are tempted to worship celebrities, to worship romance, to worship money and success and wealth. And so we need to think to ourselves, what gets our time? What gets our focus? What gets all of our energy? Is it Jesus? Is it what he says about us in the Bible? Or is it all of these other things, all these other pressures that are coming at us from every other angle? Pergamum comes from the Greek word gamos, which means marriage. And in this letter, we get a picture of a church that is married to the world rather than married to Christ. And they are told to repent and overcome. And so one thing I love about these letters is that God gives in each letter this impression that it's not too late. And he tells them, you can still overcome. You can still be victorious. And he promises them hidden banna and a white stone, which we don't have time to go into all the different things of what these mean right now. Um, one thing that the white stone is likely referring to is also a reference to athletes when you know a winner would win in the Olympics or an athletic contest they would get a, a white stone which would give them admission to an awards banquet and so there's all these little things that God is portraying and saying that these people probably would have understood the fourth church is called Thyatira and this one's even worse. <laughs> this is also considered to be the corrupt church. So we do not want uh, to resemble this church, that's for sure. This Thyatira was a secular city. It was the smallest of the seven cities, and it was a working person's town. There was a lot of cloth making, dyeing, and pottery industries. This is where Lydia was from, who's mentioned in Acts chapter 16. She, was, uh, she sold expensive purple cloth. And um, so like I said, each of these letters has some similarities. Uh, this letter starts off with a description of Jesus, as they all do. And these are the words that are said here about him. Revelation 2.18 says, To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. And this is actually the only time in Revelation that we see the phrase Son of God, referring to Jesus. And this is likely because he wanted to portray, he is the Son of God. He want, God wanted to portray his, uh, his deity here because he is able to judge and this church was one of the churches that needed some judgment. They are commended for a few things. They're commended for love and faith and service and endurance. They were doing many things well. 
but they're also rebuked for some serious problems. And they had allowed a woman who's referred to as Jezebel to come in and uh, lead people astray and deceive them with false teaching. Uh, She'd actually led people into idolatry and sexual immorality. And so the problem with this church is that they were tolerating this. They were allowing sin and evil to take place. And so they had lots of love, but this church lacked truth. So they are challenged to repent, to hold tightly to the truth, and again, to overcome. God doesn't want us to be tolerant and passive when it comes to sin in our own individual lives. 2 Timothy 2.22, this is a verse that you know, I often would share with the young people, and it's just one that's spoken to me over the years. It says, run from anything that stimulates youthful lust. And then it goes on to tell you what you should pursue instead. I heard a pastor talking about this years ago when I was younger, and it just kind of stuck with me. And he was using the illustration, you know, of two teenagers, you know, sitting on a couch together, and all of a sudden they start to touch hands, and then they move closer, and then they start to kiss, and like one thing starts leading to another. And this pastor was like, if you find yourself in that situation, get up from that couch, run out the door, run down the street, run to your home, slam the door behind you. And I was like, okay, that sounds pretty extreme. Like that person would never talk to you again. But that's kind of what God is telling us to do when it comes to sin, when it comes to evil. Like don't just stick around and try and fight it. God's saying run from it. Like flee for your life. And we have to take sin that seriously. In every single one of these letters, Jesus starts out with the same words, I know all the things you do. I know your works. And this can be really comforting to some of us, and it can also be really scary. Like, God knows and sees everything, even if we think other people don't know this. Other people don't see this. And so he's, he's so against sin, not because he just wants to be this, like, I don't know, power-hungry whatever person in our lives. Like, he's so against sin because he knows that it hurts us. It hurts us as individuals. It hurt, like, addictions and all of these things. It hurts us in our relationships with other people. And it hurts us in our relationship with God. And so that's why he wants us to take these things so seriously and run from them, flee from them. Every single letter also ends the same way. It says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so anyone who is willing, you can still overcome. You can still be victorious. He's still giving them all hope. God's plan has always been for the church, and God is still building his church. God's plan is still for the church, and you guys here today are a part of the church. So even if we identify with this corrupt church today, it's not too late. You're still who Jesus came for. You're still who Jesus is calling for and wants to bring freedom into your life. Church number five, Sardis, this Oh, man, it gets worse. This church is called the Dead Church. I promise it gets better. But this church was located on a hill or a mountain. It was wealthy. It seemed to be secure. It seemed to be impenetrable. 
it was surrounded by steep cliffs, which everybody thought, well, no one can scale, you know, these walls. Like, yet it was overcome on multiple occasions. It was conquered. And so there was overconfidence and complacency in this city and in this church. The community was regarded by others as being very effective. They looked really good on the outside. They had a good reputation. They looked very much alive and healthy, but inside they were dead and dull and dry. And so we're going to read Revelation 3, verses 1 to 3 about the Sardis church. It says, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spears of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. Again, he's always saying, I know everything about you. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. I have a feeling that the Sardis church never intended to get to this point where they were considered like not only asleep, but they were considered dead in many ways. And I don't think we as Christians would ever intend to get there when it comes to our faith either, that our faith just becomes, gets to the point where it's actually dead. So how does something die? Something dies when it gets old, when it gets diseased. So think spiritually here. Something dies when it doesn't get fed or nourished. Something dies when it doesn't get loved or cared for and when it doesn't grow. And so how is our relationship with God? How is your personal relationship with God? Is it growing? Is it being nourished? Is it being loved and cared for? Is it being fed? If not, we shouldn't be surprised when all of a sudden we have all these doubts and all these questions and we don't really want to read our Bibles anymore. We don't really want to go to church anymore. We don't really want to pray anymore. We shouldn't be surprised when that starts to happen in our spiritual lives. One of the basic things that we all need as human beings to live, to survive, is food. And isn't it interesting that Jesus calls himself the bread of life? In John 6:35, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And so as we go about our Thanksgiving dinners today, this weekend, maybe tomorrow, you know, we need to celebrate, we need to have fun, we need to just feast and enjoy each other's company. But let's also not forget that we can be so full of the world, so full of everything, just so full of busyness and life and going from one thing to another, but our spirits might actually be starving. And our spirits, if they starve for too long, they actually die. And so in a few moments, we're going to take time for communion. And it's going to be a moment to kind of feed and nourish your spirit and just spend time with the Lord. What good is it to go through all the motions and have all the religious appearance down and look like a Christian and do all the good things but be dead and drained on the inside? What good is it for us as a church to go through all the motions and have all the programs and look really good and, you know, we've got all these decorations and things like we look really good, but 
are we actually alive? Is Jesus actually transforming lives? Is he actually doing miracles? Are people actually getting saved, good and saved, like forever saved? And so these are the things that we need to be considering. Jesus tells this church to wake up and repent. And it ends with, again, an encouragement to those who are victorious. They will be clothed in white. And white is a symbol of purity, of righteousness, of holiness, and sinless perfection, which, if you've been a human being for any amount of time, you know that we are not perfect. None of us are. We all have sin in our lives. And so the only way we can ever be clothed in white and attain this is just, it's only through Jesus. That's the same message we preach, you know, every time. It's like, it's only through Jesus. And that's why we're going to spend time with communion, because in communion with Jesus today. Because it's only through the blood of Jesus that we are made pure and that we are cleansed, that our sins are forgiven. The sixth church, we're getting there, you guys. Everybody just like reach way up high. Make sure you're awake. Wave your hands. Do a little twist. Okay, we're on the the sixth course of this meal. Philadelphia, this is also considered to be the faithful church. It's located on a hillside about 30 miles southeast of Sardis. This church actually experienced earthquakes from time to time. And so, as you can imagine, it didn't have a real sense of security. People probably experienced a lot of fear. Most people actually lived outside of the city walls for fear that earthquakes or the aftershocks would cause more damage, cause more things to come crashing down. But believe it or not, if you could choose to be a part of a church, this is probably the one that you would choose. The name Philadelphus or Philadelphia means brotherly love. And this church is praised and encouraged for remaining faithful and for being obedient despite feeling weak and despite having little strength. And so this could be referring to the fact that they were a small church, they were small in number, or literally they, their infrastructure was weak. Second Corinthians 12, 9, God says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. And God wants to be our strength. And so if you're here today and you feel weak, you feel tired, you feel like you don't have much to offer. God wants to be your strength, and his strength is made perfect in your weakness. This church is given no rebuke. But they are encouraged to persevere, and blessing will come. In Revelation 3.12, it says, The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. And so it's really interesting that the one church that seems weak physically, infrastructure, God says, I will make you pillars in the city of God in eternity. And so this church is a reminder for us to have faith and not fear. It's a reminder for us to focus on eternity and not just what's temporary. And as I mentioned, it's a reminder that God wants to be and can be your strength if you're going through a hard time, even spiritually, if you feel weak, you feel like you don't have much to offer, even as a parent, you feel weak, like you just can't do it. God wants to be your strength. And finally, the last church, Laodicea. This is called the lukewarm church. Now, unfortunately, 
there is nothing positive to say about this church, but it is definitely interesting. This was the most southern of all the cities and the wealthiest of all of them. It was prosperous. It was an industrial and commercial center. It was known for its banking industry. It was also well-known manufacturer of wool. These are all going to be relevant, I promise. It was known for its medicine, particularly its eye ointment that they made. And so we see all these three industries come up later in the letter. One practical problem that the city had was its water supply. Water had to travel several miles through an underground aqueduct from other places until it got to this city of Laodicea. And by the time it got there, the water was dirty and lukewarm. And so God is using, again, language that this church would understand. Verse 15 to 16, Jesus says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, nor, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. So these are strong words. But again, words that these people would understand. They experienced dirty, lukewarm water all the time. We all, uh, we all like a cold glass of water, you know, and we can appreciate a really hot cup of coffee or tea, but most of us don't really like things when they're lukewarm. You're all probably hoping that your turkey dinner today is not going to be lukewarm. You know, growing up, we'd all sit down for dinner and my mom would sit down finally and say, oh no, they're not even hot anymore. And she'd want to take all of our plates back and put them in the oven or put them in the microwave. And I, and I know I'm already like that too, because I do that sometimes. And verse 17 to 18. So these people understood being lukewarm, that's not a good thing. That's not something that we want to be. And it goes on to say, you say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked. I counsel you to buy gold from me, gold refined in the fire so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve or ointment to put on your eyes so you can see. So again, we see gold being mentioned here. Wool and eye ointment. Gold, you know, this community experienced economic prosperity, but spiritually they were bankrupt. And being a city known for its banking industry and for its wealth, Jesus tells them, don't look to the world for your riches and for your wealth. Don't look to the world and just be full of, you know, material items and be full of success in the world's eyes but look to me. As I said, it was also known for its manufacturing of wool. And Jesus tells them, instead of worrying about covering your physical bodies with like woolen clothes, get white garments from me. And so again, this is referring to the purity and the righteousness that we could only get, only find in Jesus. And lastly, he says, eye ointment. You know, this the Laodicean medical school actually produced eye ointment. So they understood and he says, no, you need ointment for your eyes spiritually so that you can see spiritually, you know, where you are lacking and what, what you're in need of 
get eye ointment to help you see what I have done for you on the cross. And so to summarize, they are rebuked for being lukewarm and self-satisfied and indifferent. And God challenges to re- them to repent and to turn back to him. In 1983, John Pike. John Piper spoke a sermon. I was not alive then. And um, it was called How to Buy Gold When You're Broke. And he was referring to these verses here. How do you buy gold and garments and medicine? And his point was, you don't pay, you pray. And he was just talking about prayer and the importance of prayer. And so I want to just read you a quote that he said. He said, the way to tell whether you are among the number of the spiritually self-satisfied is to look at your prayer life. There's the barometer. To tell whether we are in the bondage to spiritual self-satisfaction, the question is how frequently, how earnestly, how expectantly, how extendently do you strive with God in prayer to have a deeper knowledge of Christ? I don't know about you, but I feel convicted. (laughs) And the question for us to consider is, you know, like, are we hungry for more of God? Are we just hungry for food? And and I get that, and you guys are going to go to your turkey dinner soon, but are we hungry for more of the Lord in our lives? Is there a desperation for him to actually change us and transform us from the inside out? So one of the last verses, we'll close with this, in Revelation, and then we're going to have communion together. Revelation chapter 3, it said to this church in Laodicea, this, this lukewarm church who has nothing good going for it. And so again, if you're here today and you feel like you have nothing good going for you in life, you have nothing good going for you spiritually, your relationship with God is just, it's not even, maybe it's not even existent. Maybe you identify with the corrupt church. Maybe you know there's lots of sin and issues in your life. This is what Jesus is saying to us. Revelation 3.20, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. The NLT says we will share a meal together as friends. And so Jesus is knocking today. And he's saying, would you stop keeping me at a distance? Would you stop just being busy and just going about your life while your spirit is starving? Will you share a meal with me? I find when people have food and drinks in their hands, they're just so much more like relaxed. You know, the walls come down. They just feel like they can be themselves. And that's what God wants when it comes to your relationship with him. He wants you to just be real and be yourself. And so we're going to take these little communion emblems. And I pray that those walls would just come down as you just sit with him and spend time with him and talk to him. Maybe you need to repent. Maybe you need to confess some sins. But also listen for his voice. Listen for what he wants to say to you and how he wants to just pour his love on you as well and say, you can still be victorious, not by your own strength, but by my strength. You can still be pure and holy and righteous, not by anything that you can do, but what I have already done for you. And so communion is the act of sharing. It 
means to have intimate fellowship or communication with someone. And the first ever communion that Jesus did with his friends was around a dinner table. And so maybe even this weekend as you have Thanksgiving dinner with your family, you might want to incorporate communion into that. And just take time to remember what Jesus has done for you. And so we're going to take communion um, as a way to respond to this message today, as as a way to respond to Jesus who's knocking at that door and saying, okay, God, I invite you to come into my life. So whether you're here and you've been a Christian for a long time, or maybe you've swayed away and you know you don't have a good relationship with God right now, or maybe you've never have, make communion today be a way for you to have that relationship. Just have that commune, like com- to commune, to dine with Jesus. And the the juice or the wine represents Jesus's blood, represents what he did on the cross for you and shedding his blood. And it washes us clean. And the bread represents his body. And so what we're going to do is I'm actually going to play a worship song on the screen so that the band can participate in this as well. And whenever you feel ready, maybe you want to just stay in your chair and talk to Jesus for a few minutes. Whenever you feel ready, there's a station right here, right here, right here. And there's also communion um, station at the back there. So of course what we need to make sure that we do is maintain social distancing only touch the emblems that you want to take and when you come up and get them take them back to your seat with you and then again when you feel ready on your own accord you know slip down your mask take them and just enjoy a moment of just being with jesus just dining with jesus having communion with him and remembering what he's done for you And I just pray that as you do that, you would just feel his love, his forgiveness, his healing just wash over you. And so we might not officially end this service in the next few moments. Um, The worship video that's going to play is like 20 minutes long. (laughs) So if you have to go after you take communion, if you have to go, like, we bless you. Like, there's there's no shame. We, we understand that you have to go. But if you want to just take some extra time today before you go on with your Thanksgiving celebrations, there, just know that there's no rush. I might eventually come up and say a closing prayer, but just take time to just worship and be with the Lord. So, again, whenever you're ready. God, I just thank you so much for today. I pray that over these next few moments, God, that we would just be able to enjoy communion with you. Thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you that if we find ourselves identifying with any of these different churches in in any area, God, that you are calling out to us and you are knocking on that door saying, open the door to me. And I just pray, God, that our hearts would be willing to invite you in, to invite you into every area of our lives and no longer keep you at a distance. In Jesus' name, amen.